Amen. Thank you for that, Jeff. It is such a blessing to be here with you this morning. Um, I bring greetings from Medway Baptist Church. We did make the long, long journey this morning all the way from Medway. Um, maybe you've heard of it. Um, so it's, it's great to be here, and as, as Jeff just men- mentioned, it's been such a blessing for our churches to be able to work together more closely lately, especially with our youth groups joining up for um, youth group activities. We had the conference, joint conference that we had in the, the winter. That was fantastic. And then, of course, the youth camp that they just got back from. So it's been such a blessing for us and for our family, uh, for our church, to be able to partner uh, with, with you guys. And, and a blessing for us as well, uh, for me and for my family, to get to know your pastor, Pastor Kurt, and, uh, and his family better over these last couple years. And, of course, um, Jeff as well. It's been such a, such a blessing for us. So it's always good. We don't get many opportunities to get out and visit other churches but it's always great to be able to be with God's people, to, see, to remember that God has people everywhere and to be able to worship and rejoice with God's people. So we are so thankful for this opportunity. I realized that I, I forgot to ask Pastor Kurt how long I have to preach, so that's a dangerous thing, I think, but uh, keep it under an hour and a half or so. Um, all right, so uh, it is difficult also to sometimes know what to speak about when you're going to another church because you don't you know, you don't know the, the history of the church as well. You don't know the issues, the struggles, the, the victories. Um, you don't know what the church is going through. So sometimes it's difficult to know what to speak about when you're, when you're preaching at another church. But that's why it's good to know that there, that there is something that connects and unites all Christians and faithful churches, and that is the message of the cross the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. That's what we're going to be focusing on. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the foolishness of the message of the cross. And I know that that might sound strange at first, but hang in there with me this morning as we consider what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians. So again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 17. We'll read verses 17 and 18 to hear what Paul has to say to this church at Corinth. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Paul is telling the Corinthian believers here that his primary goal, his primary mission was not to baptize people. His primary focus was to preach the gospel. His primary focus was, as he says in verse 18, to preach the message of the cross. So, so what is that message of the cross? When he says, I'm primarily to preach the message of the cross, what is it? What does that mean? Well, the message of the cross, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was executed on a Roman cross like a common criminal. But that his death was no ordinary death. His death was not the death of a criminal, but the death of a savior. A sacrificial death of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. A death that would, as John the Baptist said, take away the sin of the world. That's the message of the cross. That's the message that Paul was to preach. That Christ has been crucified so that sinners can be free. And here he says in verse 18, 
He says in verse 18 that as this message is preached and as it's heard by a group of people, he says there are two responses to the message. There are two responses. If you see there in verse 18, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so to that group, when they hear the message of the cross, they determine in their minds that it's a a foolish message, that it's folly. And Paul says for this group, he says the message of the cross is, is leading to their death because they're rejecting it. They're perishing because a rejection of the message of the cross leads to death. But the other group that he mentions here is those who hear the message and receive it as truth, those who believe it. And to those people, the message brings salvation. It's not foolishness to them, but to those people, they experience it as the power of God unto salvation. It's the power that rescues them from judgment and from death. And then in verse 19, in verse 19, Paul says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And he's pulling here from a couple of Old Testament passages in Job chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, as well as Isaiah 29, 14. He's pulling these passages, but, but he's essentially saying this is what God's intent is here. God's intent is to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And he's going to bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And so we know that that's what God's intent is, but the question is, How is God going to do that? How is he going to do that? And that's what the rest of this passage is about. How God is going to do that. So let's look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You know, the world is, is full of so-called wisdom. And Paul uses the term wisdom here, not in the sense that we would think of it in a biblical sense, when we think of maybe the book of Proverbs and we think of the fear of the Lord is, is you know, the beginning of wisdom or something like that. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a man-centered wisdom here, a wisdom that is attained without reference to God. And there are so many who claim to be wise Back then, they may have been called the philosophers or the sages, or as it says here in this passage, the the scribes and the disputers or the debaters of the age. We don't use those terms so much these days, but we may use terms like the experts. The experts. We're told to trust the experts, the ones who really, really know what's going on. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem that some of the experts have had a really great track record lately. But we have people today who think they are so wise that they can redefine, for instance, what it means to be human, can redefine biology, can redefine human life. And this is, this is man's wisdom. This is worldly wisdom. But the wisdom of man, even if it's not sinful, The wisdom of man cannot possibly compare with the wisdom of God. So that if you were to gather together all of the wise people throughout history, all of the philosophers and scientists and theologians, 
all of the people who have been wise throughout history, if you were to gather them all together and combine all of their wisdom and compare it to the wisdom of God, it would seem as nothing. It would seem as a, as a tiny molecule against the expanse of the universe. It's nothing. And that's what Paul is getting at here. So how is it that God makes foolish the wisdom of the world? What means does he use to demonstrate that the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness? And the answer is, he uses the message of the cross. He uses the message of the cross. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This is one of my favorite verses in this passage. Think about what Paul is saying here. He says, for since in the wisdom of God. So whatever follows here, whatever he describes after this is going to be the wisdom of God that he's describing. So what is the wisdom of God here? How does God display his wisdom? Well, it's God's wisdom that the world, so we have God's wisdom it's God's wisdom that the world, through their wisdom, cannot know God. That's God's wisdom. God is not able to be known for who he truly is through the wisdom that is generated by the fallen human mind. That's what he's saying here. It is not possible for the world to know who God is by using the wisdom of the world. So it's God's wisdom... That man's wisdom can never get us to God. That's how God set this up. And so it's not just that man's wisdom is nothing compared to God's wisdom. It's actually that man's wisdom is ineffectual and incapable of bringing us to God. It's not possible. And that's the thing that's needed the most for us to get to God. And here he's saying that you can't do that by man's wisdom. So the wisdom of man fails to do what is most important for man. The wisdom of man is shown to be powerless in that which matters the most. So if man's wisdom is unable to do this to bring us to God, then what can? Well, look at this verse again. He says, for since... In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For since this is impossible through man's wisdom to come to God, for since that's impossible, it pleased God to provide another way. It pleased God to provide another way, a different way for man to come to God, not through wisdom, but through the message that does not sound very wise. Through a message that sounds like foolishness. This is how God brings people to himself. You want to know God? Well, believe the foolish-sounding message of the cross. If you believe this message, this passage says, you will be saved by God. Not by your wisdom, but by his mercy and his power. And in his wisdom, he says, whoever believes that message, they will live. So God trumps 
the, the wisest men of the earth with a message that sounds like foolishness to many people. And this is how he shows man's wisdom to be powerless and ultimately empty. What man cannot do in his, in his best wisdom, God does through what some might call folly and foolishness. Let's look at verses 22 to 24. He continues here. He says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he says here that Jews seek a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. And if you think back to the ministry and life of Jesus, and I understand that you guys just finished the book of Matthew not too long ago, and you'll recall that throughout the book of Matthew, throughout the Gospels, the Jews are always saying, show us a sign. Show us a sign that we may believe. They wanted to see evidence that Jesus was sent from God, even though they generally dismissed the evidence that was right in front of them anyway. But they wanted a sign. They wanted proof. Prove to us you are who you say you are. And the Greeks don't seek after signs so much, it says here, as, as much as they seek after wisdom. And when I hear that, I think of Paul's address in Acts on Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 21 says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in doing nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's what they spent their time in. New knowledge, new understanding, new wisdom of the world. That's what they wanted. But whether they were seeking after a sign or they were seeking after wisdom, both of these groups were really seeking after the same thing. They were seeking to find the truth, seeking to find God on their own terms. On their own terms. I'll believe when I see a sign. I'll believe when it makes sense to my intellect. But the reality is, we can't come to God on our own terms. That's the whole point of this. We don't come to him on our own terms. We come to God on his terms and his terms only. And his terms are this, as we, as we hear in John chapter 3. We all know John 3.16, but the verses right before that says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. These are God's terms. These are God's terms. There is no other way to God. This was a stumbling block to the Jews because their Messiah wasn't supposed to die the death of a common criminal. That didn't make sense to them. And to the Greeks, the idea that a God would be mocked by mortals and be beaten and crucified by men may have sounded very, very foolish to them. What kind of God is that after all? Look at verse 24. He's just talked about the, the Jews and the Greeks and what they seek after, but look at verse 24 again. It says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so there's a third group here, isn't there? There's a third group here. There's the, there's the Jews and then there's the Greeks. But Paul says in verse 24, there's another group. 
to those who are called. To those who are called out of the Jewish nation, to those who are called out of the Gentile nations, to those people, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Those people don't need a sign. Those people don't need a special wisdom of the world. To this group, Christ is shown to be the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who are called out by God of these nations, to those Christ is revealed. These are drawn by the Father. These believe in the Son. These are sealed by the Spirit. And that's us, church. That's us. That's believers. Look at verse 25. He says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, of course, we know that there is no foolishness in God. We know that there is no weakness in God. And so his point is pretty clear here that even if there were foolishness in God, even if he were weak, even if he did have one aspect that was, that was a little bit weak, it would still be more powerful than all the power and strength in the world. Even if he was a little bit foolish, that foolishness would, would overrule all the wisdom of the world. The message of the cross Seems like foolishness, but guess what? The foolishness of God trumps the wisdom of man. In fact, it doesn't just trump it, it destroys it. It shows it to be powerless, ineffectual, incapable of doing that which we need the most. So, the question is, how does all of this play itself out in the world? What does this look like when it plays itself out in time and history And in our lives, what does this look like? Well, that's what Paul gets to in these next verses. Let's read 26 through 28. Paul says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So Paul is saying, this is what God's wisdom look like. looks like. He's saying, Corinthian believers, he's saying, just look around. Church, just look around. Where are the kings among you? Where are the philosophers among you? Where are the sages, the mighty warriors, the heroes? Not many of them are called. But you are. The farmers and the merchants and the laborers, the housewives and the children, the ordinary, everyday people. The kingdom of God is primarily made up of these people. Of the common, of the weak, of the wounded of the strugglers, of the despised and the forgotten. It's not primarily made up of those who are great in the eyes of man, but of the humble, the hardworking moms and dads and brothers and sisters, of people like us. And so we can say today, look around First Baptist Church, New Carlisle. Look around Medway Baptist Church. 
We may not be much in the eyes of the world, but we are chosen and called by God, and we are precious in his eyes. This is the wisdom of God on display in the world. And we see it right here this morning. In the Bible, the wisdom of God looks like the tax collector being justified and not the Pharisee. It looks like David, the young, unlikely brother, being chosen to be king and not the older brothers. It looks like fishermen and tax collectors chosen to be disciples and not princes and kings. It looks like the widow's two mites being more valuable than a great offering given out of abundance. It looks like the first being last and the last being first. With God, things are not as the world would have them be. It it looks like God taking on flesh as an infant, growing as a man and being crucified by those he created. And in the wisdom of God, the only way to God is not through power or riches or fame or intellect or wisdom. The only way to God is through faith in his son. Faith to believe that all that is needed for your sins to be forgiven and for you to enter the kingdom of God, all that is needed has already been accomplished, not by you, but by Christ. We add nothing. It's 100% grace, 0% human merit. I mean, the song we sang is true. Your grace is enough. What else do we need? We can't add anything else. Christ has done it all. As Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But we might ask, well, why did God do it like this? Why not 90% God and 10% man's wisdom? Or 10% effort? Why not like that? Why not 99% grace and 1% works? Well, let's read the next few verses. Starting in verse 29. He says, God did it like this, verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So why did God and his wisdom do it like this? Why did he accomplish salvation like this? And the short answer is, so that he gets all the glory. So that he gets all the glory. No flesh can boast in his presence. If only the wise were saved, or if we were saved by our wisdom, then we would have something to boast about, wouldn't we? I was wise enough. If we were saved by our strength, we would have something to boast about. I was one of the strong ones. If we were saved because of our, 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 our nobility, then we have something to boast about before God. But in God's wisdom, every ground for possible boasting is cut off. There is no ground for boasting. If you're going to boast about your salvation, you're going to have to boast in God and not yourself. 
Everything necessary for our salvation is found in Christ and not in us. He became wisdom from God for us. That's what this passage says. We don't need to try to figure it out on our own. In fact, we can't figure it out on our own. If you're a believer this morning, Christ, this verse says in verse 30, Christ is your righteousness. He is your righteousness. He was perfectly righteous, having kept the laws of God from the time he was born as an infant until the time he died. He kept every law of God perfectly. Guess what? I haven't done that, and you haven't done that either. But Christ did that. And the righteousness that Christ earned when we trust in him, gets credited to our account, gets imputed to us, counted as if it's ours. Christ is your righteousness. This also says that he is our sanctification. Christ has sanctified you. He has set you apart for God's holy purpose. He has set you apart to be his son or daughter, to be in his family, to be used for his kingdom and for his glory. This also says that Christ is your redemption. So not only have you received his righteousness as a free gift, he has taken upon himself your sin, redeeming you from the curse of the law. And it's because of, it's because of this that we can sing so joyfully songs that say things like, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, his righteousness Faultless to stand before the throne. Just think of that. You and me with our histories of sin, faultless before God because of Christ. So, if all of this is true, then how should these truths affect us? How should these things change us? I just want to explore very briefly three responses to this. I believe the truths of this passage should first of all drive us to humility. They should strengthen our confidence and they should keep us focused on the cross. First of all, these truths should drive us to humility before God. When you stand before God on judgment day, what do you suppose you'll boast about? Even if God were to say to us, give me the best five minutes of your life, the best five minutes that you've ever lived in your whole life, and I will judge you based on those five minutes of your life, we're still going to be condemned. We're still going to fall short of the glory of God. You know, the Bible says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Not our sins, our righteousness, the very best parts about us. Filthy rags in the sight of God. If we are saved, we have nothing to boast about. All of our boasting will be in Christ. All of our boasting will be in the cross. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And that should drive us to humility before God, first of all. And if we are humbled before God, then we're going to be humble before other people as well. We're going to be humble before other people as well. We will esteem others better than ourselves. We'll seek to love others as Christ loved others. We'll seek to serve others as Christ served others. 
We'll seek to forgive others as we have been forgiven by God in Christ. So knowing these truths should lead us to humility before God and before man. But these truths should also lead us to confidence. They should strengthen our confidence, confidence in God and confidence in his promises and confidence in the gospel message. We should have confidence in the gospel even if we're called foolish. That's the point here. It sounds foolish to the world, and so it's okay if people call you foolish. And I think of, I think of young people who are maybe going off to, to college, university. It's okay if you're called foolish for believing the gospel. It's okay. Just remember that there's power in the gospel message. And that the world is going to think it sounds like foolishness. Stand firm in your faith in God and in the power of the message of the cross. Have confidence in the power of the gospel message. And also it should give us confidence that our salvation is secure. Because it's God who saved you. And it's God who will keep you to the end. It's God who will keep you to the end. You weren't saved by your wisdom or your wealth or your power or your strength. And you're not going to be kept by your own wisdom or strength. You're not going to be kept by your own wisdom. Otherwise, guess what? You could boast. I did it. It was me. I held on long enough. You were saved by the grace of God and you will be kept by the grace of God. And because of that, you get all the blessings and God gets all the glory. So be confident in the gospel message and in the assurance of your salvation. And lastly, this passage should remind us to keep our eyes on the cross. Again, in verse 17, the first verse that we read this morning, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. That's where Paul's eyes were constantly fixed, on the gospel of Christ. In fact, look also... Down in chapter 2, verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. With everything swirling around him, Paul kept his eyes on the cross because he knew that that is where the power of God was found. There was so much that could have distracted him and pulled him away, but he fought to keep his eyes on the cross. And don't we have so much today that distracts us, that tempts us to turn our eyes somewhere else, to look somewhere else, to take our eyes off of the cross, to take our time away, to take our attention elsewhere, not even necessarily sinful things, right? Just, just the busyness and the pace of our lives sometimes can distract us, and then add to that the endless options for entertainment, and then add to that that our hearts are naturally prone to wander anyway, and then add to that the, the culture wars that are going on out there. There's all these things swirling around us. All of these can divert our attention. And of course, not all these things are bad things. For instance, I, I firmly believe we should be involved in the battles going on in the culture. 
Some may disagree with me on that, and that's okay. But it can become a distraction if we involve ourselves in the wrong way, if we forget that the cross must be the center. The cross must be our focus. We tend to think sometimes, or at least I think I do, that if we can just convince people with logic, if we can just reason with people, then, then you know, they'll get it, and it'll all be over, and it'll make sense. Just use reason, and you're like, okay, that doesn't seem to be working too well. So maybe it's an emotional thing. It seems like people are driven by emotions, and then you're like, okay, well, maybe we need to sway emotions a little bit. That doesn't seem to work either. But we need to remember that ultimately, the battles that are going on around us are not intellectual, logical. They're not, they're not battles of the emotions. Ultimately, these are spiritual battles that are being fought. They're spiritual battles that are being fought in the, in the world today. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that the greatest weapon we have is not our wisdom, not our ability to, to outmaneuver someone in an argument. The greatest weapon we have is the message of the cross. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message that Jesus died for guilty sinners like us. So keep your eyes on the cross. And if you're here today and you've never believed the message of the cross, the message of Jesus dying for sinners like you, then today is the day you can believe. Today is the day you can believe. You, just like everyone else, you have to decide if you believe this message is foolishness or is it the power of God unto salvation? Is it the only thing that can save me? Or is there some other way? We each have to make that decision. God promises to you today Promises that if you repent and if you believe in Christ, you will be saved. If you're a Christian here this morning, then rejoice that Christ has done all that is needed for your salvation. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. He is your redemption. In the wisdom of God, God did not allow you to come to him through your wisdom, but he graciously provided the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. His only son, so that through his death and resurrection, you would have eternal life, both now and forever. So be humble, have confidence in the power of the gospel, and keep your eyes firmly focused on the cross. And as we do this, we can say with Paul, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather as your people to worship you, our perfect, holy God. As we sang earlier, help us to behold you this morning. We thank you that you are perfect, that you are pure, that there is no unrighteousness in you. We thank you that in your wisdom, you have brought the wisdom of the world to nothing. That through this message of the cross that sounds like foolishness to so many, we find the power of God. We find the source of our hope and our strength. We thank you that Jesus was obedient to humble himself, to come and to give his life. And through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, we have hope. So strengthen us, God. Give us confidence. Help us to be humble. Help us to love you as we ought to and to love others as we ought to. Forgive us of our sins. 
Help us to keep our eyes be firmly fixed on the cross today. Thank you so much for this opportunity to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.